from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Presented by 2020lifestyles.com. This is The Blitz. The first look at the top stories in Seattle sports. They don't make them like us. They're not like everybody else. The rundown on everything Seattle sports on your way to work. Swing and a fly ball. Deep right center field. He did it again. And the stories everyone is talking about. This is the Blitz at Six. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, May 11th. Hopefully you're having a great start to your morning. Thanks for hanging out with me today. Ahead in this hour, we recap the latest two episodes of The Last Dance in which 96 Sonics made an appearance in that. Also, one of the best exchanges and worst, maybe, between Gary Payton and Michael Jordan on that documentary. We also got to hear from George Carl on the perceived slight that, of course, Michael Jordan needs no help making up motivation in his mind. But we'll hear from George Carl on that one. Also, Bobby Wagner on Mina Khan's podcast over the weekend. It was pretty cool to hear from him on what the virtual offseason is going like and how he thinks young people will adjust in the new challenges here with the coronavirus epidemic. Also reliving a little bit of the 2012-2013 LOB heyday with Bobby himself. All ahead in this hour right now. Let's get to your headlines. Let's start with Bobby and what the Seahawks are going through right now in this virtual offseason. Bobby saying uh, his coach doing a good job of making all of these Zoom meetings pretty fun. Yeah, we're doing Zoom meetings. Um, you know, you know how Coach Carroll is. You know, he's, he's done a great job trying to make it um, kind of exactly like how it would have been if we were to come in. So it's just the virtual version of kind of what we already do. So it's been, you know, the first couple of weeks have been pretty good. That being said, Bobby does think it's going to be hard for some of the rookies this year and just adapting to this new way of life. Yeah, it's going to be hard um, for them to learn, but, you know, we're going to do our best to try to, you know, kind of help them because, you know, it's hard to learn the playbook, but once you get out there on the field, it it tends to make the learning a little bit better. So they don't really have that. So um, they're going to have to really do their best. Um, You know, us as veterans going to have to, you know, make sure we make ourselves available for any questions they may have and, um, you know, kind of just go from there. It's, it's new for everybody. So we're just trying to figure this out. Bobby, also talking about Jordan Brooks, uh, one of the newest Seahawks here was Wack. Yeah, I think Matt Wells was the, um, he was our quarterback's coach when I was there. So Coach Anderson is the one that coached me and um, Coach Plume coached me. Um, but, I mean, he saw me, so he would have an idea. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, a lot of people were surprised by it. Um, but at the end of the day, you, you want to pick the best position. And I feel like it's kind of, uh, you know, hopefully a good sign that people are starting to value um, the linebacker position and value the off-the-ball linebacker position. So yeah, I'm supporting it. You know, I'm excited to have him on the team. I'm excited to, you know, bring him in. And again, you know, he's like we talked about before, you know, we're going to try to help him the best we can because we don't get to uh, be around him like normal. And so, once we, you know, hopefully this thing kind of clears and we're able to kind of get back when everything is safe, I know myself and KJ will, will gladly take them under our wing and, and tell them everything that we know. Because at the end of the day, you know, we want everybody to be um, successful and we want everybody to be able to provide for their families. It's awesome to hear. Bobby Wagner, too, also asked 
on the Seahawks' struggles on the defensive side lately, but in particular their decision to play so much base defense. Is that a challenge against some of those spread offenses? You know, the challenge is, is like you said, you know, you got guys in our division that like to, you know, have mismatch with wide receivers on, on linebackers. So you see um, that is not as easy to get to, you know, or it's easier for them to get to that, you know, being we play so much base. And so just understanding how they will attack, you know, us and, and look at our fronts or look at, you know, our personnel and how we're going to attack them. But, you know, I feel like we have um, smart linebackers and I feel like we have fast linebackers. And I think that's kind of where the league is going. If you're watching, um, you know, linebackers yeah. are getting faster and faster and, you know, they're not as big as they once were, you know, guys uh, probably back in a little bit before when I was there, you know, guys were like yeah. 250, 260, and you don't really see that as much um, yeah. now, you know, guys are like 240 and below. And so um, that's kind of how you, you combat it. You know, you just got to be, you know, fast and, and think smart and understand, you know, how they're going to attack you. And, and uh, you know, I feel like we've done a decent job. The NFC West continues to be maybe the most formidable division in football and playing against Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, uh, now Cliff Kingsbury and crew down there in Arizona as they added DeAndre Hopkins and had a pretty nice draft to their name. But in particular, Bobby Wagner on playing against Shanahan and McVay and their offensive styles. It's really difficult, especially from those two guys. You know, you have so much respect for them. You know, you come out there and, um, you know, your keys say that, you know, when they do pullers and anything like that, follow the pullers. But, you know, those guys will have a puller with a running back toss with a, receiver running one way and it just really tests your discipline and you know that's where your film study come in you know you they they put those plays on film so you gotta you know watch it but you know even those guys come up with a unique play for for just your team and so um Mm -hmm. it's fun it really challenges your intellect as a football player i have a fun trying to dissect and figure it out um there's been plays that i feel like i figured out pretty quick and there's been plays that didn't really go so well. So um, it's really fun. I think it makes the game fun, you know, watching them guys probably draw up anything that comes in their head and trying to figure it out. Bobby, also with some QB thoughts, which I liked, uh, who is the toughest QB to face in the NFL right now, according to BYU? And I can't say Russell. You can't say Russell, yeah, obviously. I would probably say Lamar is the one that pops out. First. I mean, so he's, was- pretty, he's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty good. Bobby Wagner, too, on which QBs are more mobile than they get credit for. I would say probably Aaron Rodgers. I would say. <laughs> would you say he's about, sneaky athletic? Is he deceptively quick, Bobby? I don't I don't know if it's sneaky. I think if you, you know, us football players, you watch. He, he takes off and he's able to gain some yards and, and you know, you respect it. But I think. Um, Especially early in his know, career, I'd say. Yeah, he, he would be a guy that you're, you know, if. You know, because you're so worried about, you know, how well he passes, uh, sometimes yeah. you, you leave him with space and he picks up, you know, uh, 15 yards really quickly. So he's a guy that you got to kind of pay attention and don't let the arm fool you that he can take off to. Bobby Wagner also reflecting a little bit on past defenses here in Seattle and talked about how everyone being so close in age really helped the LOB grow and develop together. I think it was a, um, you know, growing with them feel because, you know, even though those guys were there and I knew of them, um, you know, I think Sharon was like 23, uh, Cam was like 24, um, Earl was probably 24 as well, and I was coming in 21. So it wasn't like, 
they were that much older than me where we couldn't really connect. Um, you know, I feel like sometimes guys go into a, um, you know, organization or a team where it's, you know, a lot of their, the, the leaders are 29, 30 plus. It's kind of hard to relate. So I felt like we, we just grew together and, um, you know, they accepted me for who I was. It was easy for them to, you know, especially for guys like KJ and Sherm to kind of like tell me, you know, what I could expect as a rookie since they just did it. And so, you know, it's just fun. You know, we connected. Everybody, we, we naturally, it almost felt like college. We just started hanging out and got close and that translation on the field. Bobby asked uh, what Sherm was like as a rookie. It says, well, he was exactly who he was, true to himself. He was who he was, man. He, he was the same he person always he been. always has always yeah. been. He was, you know, challenging you, you know, challenging, you know, your viewpoint of on any situation, whether it's sports, football, anything, Um but, you know, I feel like we got to see, uh, you know, a different side, you know, a caring side, a, a chill, relaxed <laughs> side, sometimes quiet side that uh, people didn't really uh, see from the outside looking in. Bobby Wagner, finally, on what he can do now that he couldn't do earlier in his career. I think I have a, you know, slowing the game down was something that, you know, coming in, it was talked about, but I didn't really understand how to do that. And I feel like as I got older, you know, the game is, is so slow. You know, I'm processing things so quick. And I don't think I was doing that um, when I first got into the league. And um, you just see it. You know, you watch um, you watch older guys like Ray Lewis and all those guys, and you see they don't take a lot of steps. All their steps are precise is because they know where the ball is going. And so, you know, I think I'm a lot more patient than I was you know, when I was a rookie, you know, back in, when you're a rookie, you just running out there trying to make plays. But now you understand where the ball is going and you try to beat them there. Coming up on the Blitz, uh, the NFL building plans and potential contingency plans. They released their schedule last week. What did we learn from the Seahawks schedule? We'll talk to a couple of experts on that as well. Plus, uh, the Michael Jordan documentary was pretty emotional, I'd say, in these fi- these last two episodes. Not the final two. That would be next week. But we'll play you also one of the most memorable scenes that was between Gary Payton and Michael Jordan. It's next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. Welcome back to the Blitz at Six. Lydia Cruz alongside with you. Have you guys been watching every episode of The Last Dance? I certainly have. And yesterday, the beloved Sonics making an appearance uh, in the 1996 finals as they jump around between uh, that last dance year and the past championships that Jordan won and just getting to know him on a deeper level. Also, some pretty emotional episodes because of the death of Jordan's father and uh, everything that ensued there, Jordan wanting to retire, going to play baseball, still one of the most impressive athletic achievements I think I've ever seen. Michael Jordan leaving basketball uh, 14 years removed from playing baseball and hitting over 200 in double A after not playing for that long. Also had a 13 game hitting streak to open it up. And hearing Terry Francona talk about what he did, he was on that documentary at his coach in the minors at the time and said, I can't believe he 
actually hit 202. He drove in 50 runs. In my opinion, with 1,500 at-bats, he would have found a way to get to the major leagues. Then also seeing Jordan film Space Jam and make his early call times work with still training to get back into basketball, it was all incredible. And then finally uh, getting that next championship and his first without his father being so emotional, going through a gambit of emotions after that. But there was also some pretty incredible moments from this documentary, including uh, maybe the moment that stings a little bit for Sonics fans. Uh, but hearing Gary Payton, uh, which I love anytime the glove is talking about anything, but he talked about the series and in his mind, his uh, the choice that George Carl made to to have uh, to have GP guard Jordan, and he said that changed the series a little bit. That he was able to get to Jordan, and then Jordan's reaction, which was uh, just not having it at all. I'll play you the clip. Here it is, right here. A lot of people back down the bike. I didn't. I made it a point. I said, just tire him out. Tire the fuck out of him. You just gotta tire him out. And I kept hitting him and banging him and hitting him and banging him. It took a toll on Mike. It took a toll. And then (laughs) resting him a little bit. And then the the series changed. And I wish I could have did it earlier. I don't know if the outcome would have been different, but it it, it was a difference. (laughs) And and beating him down a little bit. The glove. I had no problem with the glove. I had no problem with Gary Payton. I had a lot of other things on my mind. Yeah, pretty incredible. Just the way he says the glove. No problem with the glove. But uh, Jordan's obviously uh, amused by that clip. It was pretty incredible. Also, I think at the end of episode seven, hearing about what it was like or the expense of being a nice guy and how, you know, Jordan almost in a sense bullied his teammates and Iron sharpens iron in his mind that he ended up helping them. And all you heard from a lot of his teammates, no, he wasn't a nice guy, but he did help me because what did we do? We ended up winning. But MJ even getting emotional about that and talked uh, when asked by the director of this episode about the expense of being, that it came at the expense of being a nice guy. When people see this, they're going to say, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Oh, well, that's you. Because you never wanted anything. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win and be a part of that as well. And then also just getting emotional. Look, I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. asking for a break there, getting emotional and tears in his eyes. Uh, Jason Hare, the director of that episode, on his decision to ask Michael about being a nice guy and what he took from it. Is all that intensity and all the success that you've achieved worth the cost of being perceived as a nice guy? Because by and large, in my estimation, you are not. Um, And you can see his expression. I think he was a little bit surprised by the question or like, he almost had this look like, well, I think I'm a nice guy. I don't know. And then <laughs> he started to get more and more intense. And by the end of that, I mean, it's 45 minutes into the first interview. 
he was tearing up and he had that, again, mm-hmm. that finger I told you guys about in the first time I met him, that huge finger that comes out <laughs> bends a foot and a half. You put that finger up and started to choke up and I could see a tear in the corner of his eye. And I'm thinking like, what is going on here? But it's funny if you talk about like, what are the things that elicit that kind of emotion from him showing him his mom reading a letter home from him his mom's voice his mom's face family elicits emotion from him and his philosophy how he lives his life defending that he is so adamant about that that he gets emotional about it and he said he finished and he put his hand up and he said break and he leaned up and got out of his chair and I got up, there was a, a bathroom behind me and I, I got up too and I didn't know where to go because I was blocked by the light. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll just go in here for a little bit and, and, and chill out. I went in there. I remember sitting there just like splashing water in my face. Like that's a moment that, that is going to be a powerful moment in this documentary. Yeah, these pretty two emotional episodes. So I can't imagine nine and 10 uh, even topping that, which I'm sure they will next week, the final two episodes of The Last Dance. We'll also hear from George Carl later in this hour on that series and defending against Jordan, why that series was a defensive one in his mind. Up next on The Blitz, though, uh, Chris Long with some thoughts on Jadevian Clowney being unsigned and if he could still end up here in Seattle next on The Blitz right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. You're listening to The Blitz from the Alaska Airlines Studio. Welcome back to The Blitz at 6. Lydia Cruz alongside with you Monday, May 11th. Uh, Happy belated Mother's Day to all of the moms out there thinking of you over this weekend, but also... I mean, it should be Mother's Day every day, right? You could tell your mom uh, that she's wonderful. Don't need just one day out of the year to do it. And also looking forward to Father's Day coming up in June as well. Hopefully, all the moms out there, you had an excellent weekend. Chris Long, a great podcast uh, he has, but also just love hearing him as a guest. He was chatting about Jadevian Clowney lately and why he's still out on the market on him being uns- unsigned and his future in Seattle. He says he wants to play for a contender. Well, that really narrows the list down, doesn't it? That's why I asked the question here, what's wrong with Seattle? Seattle is going to be as good as anybody um, out there in that division. I don't expect San Francisco to be quite as good as they were last year, and I expect Seattle to be just as good and better. Um, so I, I think if you're looking to play for contender, some familiarity for you, unless there's something I don't know about, Clowney in Seattle – Seems like just a fine fit, but I could see him in Cleveland opposite Miles Garrett. I thought that Tennessee could really use some edge rush, and they didn't have it consistently, and he's a guy that you can move around. It's called the Greenlight Podcast that Chris Long has, and he was talking about options for Jadevian Clowney. He also chatted about John Schneider, and by listening to some of his audio and some of his comments, Chris Long believes and he is over Clowney at this point. So we've got John Schneider beginning to talk in the past tense again about uh, Clowney. He's, he's talking in, in, in terms of, hey, we made a good run at it. Uh, that sounds like he's over it. Clowney doesn't seem to be a part of their equation. He wanted too much money early. 
Chris Long also saying, well, maybe the Seahawks are happy with the additions they've made in the offseason. The Hawks didn't have anybody that really could rush the passer last year, save for Clowney, who was very disruptive. But again, nobody had over four sacks on their team. They were 28th in the league as a group. And maybe they're just happy with the two edge guys they got. Maybe they're happy with the guys they got in the draft and Taylor and Robinson. I really like Taylor a lot. I think that Taylor's going to have north of four sacks this year alone. I don't think he's going to be as disruptive as a Jadavian Clowney. But if those are the numbers you're putting a premium on, I think Taylor's going to have a nice year if he can stay healthy. I think he projects well to the next level. Omar Ruiz of the NFL Network also joining Danny and Gallant recently to chat about uh, not the decision, sorry, surrounding uh, Clowney has facing him and if he thinks it's a mistake, the Seahawks not bringing Clowney back. I don't, I don't know if they've made a mistake in how they're approaching it. I think it would be a mistake if he doesn't return. So, uh, you know, they've talked about dramatically improving that pass rush. I think what they've done uh, so far has improved it. But when you talk about that dramatic improvement, I think bringing Clowney back and then supplementing with those two draft picks, Bruce Irvin, Benson Maioa, that would constitute a dramatic improvement. Omar Ruiz said that without Clowney, he thinks the Seahawks don't dramatically improve on defense. Speaking of Bruce Irvin, we also got a little bit of detail on his contract situation. According to ESPN's Brady Henderson, Bruce Irvin's contract with the Seahawks is uh, for one year, which we knew, but has a base value of $5.5 million with some incentives that are currently counting against the cap. His cap number would be around $5.9 million. Omar Ruiz also with some thoughts on the Seahawks simplifying their defense. We know in his tenure, Pete Carroll has loved to play young players, especially on defense. In recent years, though, that's kind of tapered off a little bit, or at least seemingly, and Omar Ruiz on the Seahawks simplifying their defense to get those younger guys on the field sooner. I spoke to Gus Bradley, uh, you know, the former defensive coordinator for the Seahawks, now defensive coordinator for the Chargers, and he said back in 2011 when they were there after the lockout, they simplified that defense. So we've heard that over the years. The Seahawks have that simple defense. They just have really good players and, and really good scheme, you know, surrounding the simplicity of it. But he said they did that so they could get the young players on the field as quickly as possible without having all that time of instruction. And obviously worked out well for them, expedited the process of the impact the Legion of Boom had. And so maybe we might see a similar thing to get some of those young pass rushers on the field, continue to improve that defense uh, the way they've addressed it here in uh, the offseason. Omar Ruiz also chatting about that defense, uh, saying they want to improve their defense and not having to put so much pressure on Russell Wilson, a big factor. The, the identification is that they've seen it as a source of uh, a need to improve. And, and I think, you know, those moves that you just mentioned, that outline is a reflection of that. And even the Seahawks um, kind of self-scouting and, and coming to that realization as well. I mean, I don't think anybody you talk to, you know, from Bobby Wagner on down the line, that, you know, they needed to improve that defense and, and obviously, you know, build it back up into a strength. And, and, and I think it would be a disservice to the likes of Earl Thomas and Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor and, and the Hall of Fame careers that they have had to say that they can get it back, you know, to that era and, and of dominance, but uh, certainly an area to improve so they don't have to kind of rely on Russell Wilson's heroics seemingly every week uh, would be something that would be a welcome change to the 2020 season. Omar recently had a tweet and which prompted this conversation with him on Danny and Gallant, but 
It was about how the Seahawks were exploring different offensive opportunities, especially to run more up-tempo offense in the fourth quarter, or sorry, before the fourth quarter, not just in the fourth quarter. Here was Omar expanding on giving Russell Wilson more chances to cook. You know, I think the Seahawks have identified, they have somebody who they believe is the best quarterback in the NFL, try to have him even more of an impact on the game than he already does. We know how great command Russell has of the game throughout throughout the entire fourth quarters, but let's see if they can let him have even more of an impact. And that's why, you know, part of the reason why anyway, that they've created that pass game coordinator position for Dave Canales. And then they also have a run game coordinator position now too, with Brendan Carroll, Pete's son there to see if they can make more of an impact there with that up-tempo style of play without changing their identity, that kind of run first uh, offense that Pete's always uh, been known for and, and will continue to believe in. NFL Network's Omar Ruiz, more on exploring those off- offensive opportunities. Would, they would, of course, like exploring that and seeing if that is something they can infuse. I think they would, they, they would like to in a perfect world. Certainly, they would, they would, of course, like to see that. But, yeah, it is something that they're exploring where I think maybe in years past, you know, they might have just kind of stuck to, you know, what, what they had known, what they had been uh, found overwhelming success with, you know, winning Super Bowls, obviously, returning to another one. Um, but I think, yeah, the exploration of that process, something they would like, you know, to implement if, if it suits them and they find that they can, you know, accomplish those goals, um, you know, while, like I said, you know, running the football as effectively as they can or as they want to is something that, you know, this offseason is about. Finally, uh, Omar Ruiz talking a little bit about the schedules, which were released last week on Thursday. What jumped out to him about the Seahawks schedule? He noticed some of the breaks. What jumped out to me on the Seahawks schedule is, is essentially how balanced it was with the, the time off in that I believe their bye comes in week six or so. And then they have the uh, mini bye with the Thursday night football coming a little bit later, maybe around week 11, week 12. So then they have the, you know, the break there at week six. They have the mini bye, you know, coming between 11 and 12. And so that should be a team that's kind of rested. And obviously we saw how injuries played a role last year. Uh, especially at running back toward the end of the season, you know, to try to keep the team fresh as possible, having those uh, uniformed breaks sort of built into the schedule. And I think it's a Thursday into a Monday. So it's, you know, we, we joke around and call it the mini buy after that Thursday game. But, but given that 11 days, it's almost, you know, two full buys they had in there. Also on some of those 10 a.m. kickoffs, I love this from Dave Wyman saying the Seahawks know to ha- how to handle those early games, those 10 a.m. kickoffs. The Seahawks on the plane, they have, you know, these recommendations on the menu that, you know, first of all, you know, you should drink this much water, you know, and it has the difference, you know, if it's a two hour flight, a three hour flight three plus and then don't sleep on the plane so that when you get there you can go to sleep and then you know just all about the hydration i think they take that stuff very seriously and so you know i didn't see guys out or anything it's like everybody when they got when we got to atlanta or pittsburgh or cleveland they just disappeared up into uh you know into their rooms and you there's a way to, to handle that so that you take care of it and kind of negate it that was our own Dave Wyman. Listen to him every day uh, on Bob, Dave, and more from 3 to 7. Up next on the Blitz, it's time for the hot list. The UFC holding 249 over the weekend. The results from that also one of the fighters scheduled to be involved did test positive for the coronavirus, how they handled that, and if that could 
I don't know, help other leagues who are looking to restart and need testing protocol in place, if that could end up helping them, I'll explain next in the hot list right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. From the Alaska Airlines studio, this is The Blitz. It's time for The Hot List. Holy mackerel! The headlines for the day in sports every morning at 645. Heck yes! What are we missing here? A full breakdown of the top stories of today on your morning drive. Let's go! For UFC... 249 took place over the weekend, and we'll discuss the results here in just a second. But before the event took place, Ronaldo Souza, who was scheduled to fight at UFC 249 on Saturday, tested positive for the coronavirus. And UFC immediately pulled Souza from the event. And UFC said two of Souza's cornermen also tested positive. Souza informed UFC officials upon his uh, arrival, that was on Wednesday of last week, about a family member who might have been infected with coronavirus. At that point, he was tested and monitored. He'd made weight during the official weigh-ins the Friday before and participated in a stare-down, the distance stare-down, with Hall, who he was going to face off against, wearing a mask and gloves before receiving his positive results. According to UFC, the 23 other athletes that were competing tested negative. And Dana White saying that they administered over 1,200 tests this week on 300 people. UFC officials decided the event would move forward even with the positive test after conferring with the Florida State Boxing Commission. Ariel Helwani, who reports on the MMA for ESPN, talked about the testing process that all of the USC fighters went through to lead up to Saturday night. Yeah, so obviously this was a, a very different fight week for all the fighters. When they arrived, either Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, they were told that they would have to do three things. Number one, they would have to take the COVID-19 swab test. That's the, uh, the now infamous test where they stick the, the stick up your nostril. Number two, they would have to take uh, an antibody test. You get those results back within 10 to 15 minutes. Basically, they draw some blood from your finger, and that tells you whether or not you had the coronavirus. And then number three, temperature check and they got those temperature checks every single day while they were at the hotel. Now the initial swab test that they took, uh, the fighters were told that they would get a call telling them whether or not they were either positive or negative. They never got that call and so on Friday after the official weigh-ins at around 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time, they were told that they would have to take a second swab test. Initially they were told they only had to take one swab test and so they took that second swab test and then the UFC officials said to them that they would get their results back within a few hours. That's when Jacques found out that he did in fact test positive. Two of his cornermen tested positive. The other 23 fighters that were scheduled to compete on this card, including Uriah Hall, they tested negative. Brett Akamato also reporting on MMA for ESPN talked about UFC's handling of Suze's infection and how he thinks it's encouraging. Initially, that initial reaction of, hey man, yeah, someone tested positive of this and one of the athletes that was in this hotel had it. I do think that that hit a lot of people hard. But then the fights came, the event went off. The other 23 fighters on the card tested negative for it. And I think people are sort of wrapping their head around the idea of, hey, if sports are going to come back on, there's going to be some positive tests. I mean, what we know about this virus is that it's very good at, at getting around and it's super contagious. But if the system is able to identify someone and then remove them from that and the fights can still happen, then I think everybody's sort of leaving Jacksonville on Sunday with a, a pretty positive mindset. Dan Wetzel of Yahoo Sports also talking about Dana White and how he feels obligated to show businesses can run safely. His motivation amongst anything was like, 
the obligation of we should never back down to this virus. We need to show people there's a safe way to do business. And we're like any business, and, and, I, and I do think it's any business in the country. You know, how can we do this safely? So immediately certain places had to figure that out, whether it's a grocery store or a restaurant. And his thing is, we're not just going to sit back and take take four or five months off, even though we could. We should be going and figuring out how to do this. So it, it's a little bit more of an obligation mindset. It's not just seizing opportunity uh, with him. There's there's definitely a mentality of, I've got to get this thing going. We can do this. And I want my business running. And that's what he's trying for. Um, also, what happened in the actual event itself? Henry Cejudo finished Dominique Cruz via total knockout at four minutes, just under five, four minutes, 58 seconds in the second round of UFC 249. Uh, Cejudo, a two-weight champion in UFC, former Olympic gold medalist wrestler, excuse me, his resume is so long, defended his 135-pound title for the first time, then promptly announced his retirement, which shocked a lot of, of people. Dana White appeared on SportsCenter. After after the event on Saturday night and said he wasn't that surprised. It really didn't shock me. Uh, Cejudo has been talking about retirement. Yeah, no, he's been talking about retirement to us for, for months. And uh, I, I'm, I'm of the belief that if you're talking about retirement in the fight business, you should probably retire. He looked unbelievable tonight. He got cut. Stopped him right after the cut happens. It was probably only 20 seconds left of the round. He looked incredible in his last fight. In the main event of UFC 249, Justin Gage defeated Tony Ferguson with a total knockout finish at 3 minutes 39 seconds of the fifth round. Uh, the victory earned Gage the interim UFC lightweight title, but t- he tossed the belts off after it was put around his waist by Dana White, saying in his interview that, quote, I'll wait for the real one. Dana White on uh, what he made of Gage looking so impressive. Yeah, Gaethje looked incredible tonight. Um, you know, he, he fought the perfect fight. And I, I thought, I don't want to take anything away from Gaethje, but Tony Tony looked slow tonight. Tony looked old. He looked off his game. And I, I would imagine it has something to do with him cutting weight twice in, in a month, in my opinion. How about how the entire thing played out? Yeah, I, I think it worked out great. And obviously the system that we set up works. Um, we, we found out that, that he was positive. All the other tests were negative. We have two more fights this week. We have a fight on Wednesday and a fight on Saturday. You know, we'll, we'll do over 1,100 tests this week. So, uh, you know, when you're testing that much, I'm sure we're going to find somebody else who's positive. But now we know Jacare has it. We can take care of him and, and figure out what he needs medically. And, uh, and we know that everybody else is good. So the system worked. I'm happy with the way tonight went. And I'm looking forward to Wednesday and Saturday. Jose Youngs, who uh, writes for MMAfighting.com, talked about how Dana White believes he's the real winner over this weekend, but also how this could apply to other sports looking to come back. He said UFC has laid a blueprint, but it's quite a different task and ask when you're talking about a team sport. That's an interesting question because it's not a team sport. It's not like there's five guys on a court or 20 guys on a field or 18 guys uh, on a baseball field. It's just two men thrown down inside. UFC did a, a lot to show the blueprint that it can be done, but they're not a team sport. I mean, I asked Greg Hardy at the press conference, I'd be like, what would it be like in an NFL game with no fans at this fact? Even he had to stop and think about it. So Greg Hardy goes, I don't know if they could pull it off uh, just because of all the people on the ground. Uh, the, the sheer number of people that have to go into these these 
massive sporting uh, venue? That is a very interesting question, but I can't compare the UFC to the National Football League. I, I think they laid the foundation, but the NFL is going to have to perfect it. Well, let's start with the National Basketball Association. Brian Windhorst, ESPN NBA insider, talking about the possible NBA restart and saying it's all about weighing risk. You can talk to experts. You can talk to finance guys. You can talk to facilities guys. It bottom, bottom, bottom line is comes down to where are you comfortable with taking risk? This is going to be something that is going to be on the plate of every commissioner. Where is your line of risk? The line of risk that that Dana White is willing to accept, for example, is different than the line of risk that Adam Silver is willing to accept. And that's what's going to come down to. Where can the NBA get to a risk profile that it's comfortable with? And right now, not only is it nowhere close to having an answer to that, it's nowhere close to even starting to have an answer to that. Brian Windhorst, though, when asked on what's the most realistic scenario for the NBA to return. I really do think the most realistic thing would be to to have a playoff, finish the season with those playoffs, and then move basically immediately to the next season. You'd have to have some sort of minimized offseason in between. You may even have to have the draft beforehand. So there's guys who have been drafted but can't play with their teams yet. But that's what I think is the most likely thing, but even that is just speculative at this point. Also, uh, what he learned by talking to doctors and experts on this subject. When I did the work on this, when I talked to the epidemiologists, when I talked to the academics, when I talked to the doctors, one of the things they talked about was the reason that you want to keep teams in like clusters and you don't want all 30 teams playing all 30 teams is because in the event that you have a positive test, you could contain the outbreak. And so I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, well, instead of a team having played eight teams in the previous two weeks, maybe they only would have played three or four teams. And what that means is, is that if your pod gets a positive test, goodbye to your pod. Thank you very much. We'll see you in two weeks. The rest of the playoffs must move on. See you next season. So that's an untenable way of going about it. Now, you talk to the epidemiologists. They make the recommendations. They don't care like, well, you know, I, I thought it was important for me to talk to people who weren't basketball fans because I didn't want them to sugarcoat it. But that was one of the things that they would say is, oh, yeah, you just would eliminate the pod. Don't, you know, don't worry about it. I go, well, you can't do that. You can't have the pod that would include the Lakers and the Clippers have somebody get sick and all of a sudden the two of the best teams in the league are out. Yeah. And so, again, the big challenge is if you come back, it's not just getting everybody healthy and into a bubble or even if you don't do a bubble into some sort of quarantined area it's what do you do if there's a positive test what is your plan if there's a positive test that would also be contingent on getting players to agree to playing in that bubble city idea ramona shelburne saying recently too that players hate that bubble city idea and all of the surveillance that would go with it uh the scrutiny that would go with it so getting them to agree to that idea would be pretty tough sell buster only also commenting on the MLB side of things because those biospheres, those bubble cities were one of the many ideas that baseball had floated uh, in recent weeks. Well, Buster only saying there's lots of issues that they still have to get through in order to play baseball. What happens if a player tests positive? Will the whole team be quarantined? Will they be taken off the schedule for a time? And then there are the huge financial issues that have to be resolved. One is the owners are going to want the players to take salary rollbacks. The first posturing from the union, from Tony Clark, from Super Agent Scott Boris, 
is is that they consider that to be off the table. They're done negotiating with that. And then there's the question of liability. If the Yankees open up their facility and a player comes in and, and he tests positive, who's responsible for that? You know, I've had agents tell me they expect the owners are going to ask the players to sign waivers to come back to work. They're just so many potential issues to be resolved. And that's why whatever's in the proposal, it almost is secondary to what's going on at that moment that they're actually talking about coming on when it comes to the testing and where they are with the fight against the coronavirus. However, there has been some momentum in recent weeks, and we heard from Jerry Depoto on the Jerry Depoto show last week. He felt there was positive energy and momentum moving in that direction. We also got to hear from Daniel Vogelbach, Danny Dingers, uh, who joined ESPN recently to talk about, well, first the UFC fights over the weekend, inspiring hope. First off, I thought all the fights were awesome. Kind of like almost like seeing light at the end of the tunnel. You're like, man, these guys are actually competing against each other. And watching it, it was wanting me and my competitive edge to come out like, man, I want to play. Like, I want to get this thing going and play against somebody else. Like, seeing those guys compete, you know, go back at it was, was really cool. Daniel Vogelbeck also, though, saying the idea of playing games without fans a little hard to grasp. I think the no fans thing is going to be the most difficult thing. Just like I said earlier about the fans, you feed off the energy of the fans. They're into the game, which gets you more into the game. You get excited to go out and see the stadium pull and play in front. And it's going to be, I mean, you're going to be able to hear every little noise. You know, you're used to if a walk-off homer or a guy strikes out the side, the place goes crazy. And it's going to be the same the same energy through the whole game, whether it's one nothing or whether it's 10 nothing, you'll never know from the energy. Always love hearing from Vogelbach. Well, The Last Dance featured the Sonics in this latest series of episodes, the 1996 NBA Finals, uh, where the Bulls defeated the Sonics four games to two. Um, and I think one of the more memorable moments was, well, MJ reacting to Gary Payton's quote, but also the perceived slight that Jordan had from George Carl. Uh, here was George Carl afterwards on SportsCenter talking about it. He made things up to motivate himself to reach a level of intensity that very few players ever got to. George Carl just didn't say hi to him at dinner one time. That was all Jordan needed motivation for in those finals uh, to get some revenge against the Sonics. Pretty incredible. And just getting to see the human side of Jordan, someone that I certainly thought was superhuman growing up and still is superhuman to me, but allowing him to be himself and be candid and go through some of these emotions is pretty incredible. That's a wrap for the hot list and the entire Blitz at Six Hour. Danny and Glott coming your way next right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. The glove. I had no problem with the glove.